Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. Sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, an episode that first premiered in July of 2012, it's an episode we call Treacherous. Kids, this is Risk, 
the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is The Years Behind Me Now. Now look, we're calling today's episode Treacherous. After I've made many trips to the thesaurus and many times re-recorded what you're hearing now. And let's just make a promise right here that we'll never call an episode Danger Zone because you can't get Kenny Loggins out of your goddamn mind the minute you say it. You try it. You try not thinking about Kenny Loggins right this second, my friend. You can't? That's why it's a good thing we didn't call it Danger Zone, so we wouldn't have to drag Kenny Loggins into all of this. All right. Our first storyteller is Ariana Siegel. She took my uh, uh, workshop, my storytelling workshop, when it was just brand new, and she's off to a great start. She's doing a lot of wonderful stuff all over the place now. you got to check her out at arianasiegel.com. Here's Ari at the Risk Show in New York. We call this one No Ado About Kenny Loggins. No, we call this one The Blob. I was completely and utterly terrified of semen. Now, I went to an Episcopalian high school, and uh, even though I'm Jewish, I, I somehow ended up there. And at Christian school, you don't get like an actual sex ed class, you get like your abstinence-based sex ed class. So instead of getting to ask questions that I really had at the time, like, can you get pregnant from giving a blowjob? I didn't know, or like, can semen, if it gets on your shorts, like, can it crawl and penetrate your underpants and like fertilize your egg? Like, instead of getting to ask those questions, we were just given this PowerPoint presentation with like these blown up images of gonorrhea and herpes and chlamydia and told that God was always watching. And even though I'm Jewish, I figured my God was probably also watching. And I just remember sitting in class being like, why do people have sex when they know they could die or get pregnant or both? Like the stakes were so high, I didn't understand why anyone engaged in this at all. And this was a huge source of stress for me at the time because I had my first serious boyfriend who I was in love with. His name was Alex. We met at summer Jew camp, obviously. And he was like this adorable kid full of zits and braces and we were in love. Now this was a long distance relationship. He lived in Georgia, I lived in Florida. So every few months we would come, you know, we'd go to visit each other. And to this day, he is still probably the best boyfriend I ever had, which is really sad. <laughs> 16, because he worked at the Dairy Queen every day after school to make enough money to buy a ticket to come see me. So if there's one thing that he deserved more than anything, it was a real hand job. Um, and, you know, my way of sort of avoiding hand jobs up to this point was sort of keeping it dry. You know what I mean? Just sticking to dry humping and dry hand jobs which if you don't know what that is, that's when you try to give a hand job over pants, um, which feels great, I'm sure. Uh, feels, I hear it feels really good. Um, but at some point I was like, this kid is gonna want the real deal. So it's the fifth weekend that we've spent together and I'm like prepping myself, getting myself ready. I'm like, I'm gonna get real with a penis. I'm gonna overcome my fear. I'm gonna do it. Um, and I'm just so terrified. Like, I guess, not necessarily of disease, because we're both virgins, mostly of pregnancy, but still of disease, because I thought at the time, maybe you could just have gonorrhea. Like, I didn't even understand you were getting it from other people. I just thought like, oops, I got gonorrhea. Like, I didn't understand. And I just had these questions in my head from sex ed class that no one answered. Like, okay, okay, so is sperm like a germ, right? Where like, once it hits oxygen, it dies. 
Or is sperm like a bomb silo, right? Where you could have like an active explosive in there for 50 years and then one day blows up the whole town. Like I didn't, I didn't know. Um, so Alex comes in for the weekend and we have a very romantic weekend in Tampa, Florida. Um, we go to the local mall, Clearwater Mall. We go to Hot Topic and we go have a very sexy meal at Outback Steakhouse. And uh, it's really a perfect weekend, except I'm avoiding his penis, like, like the plague, all weekend, until Sunday rolls around and he's about to leave. And I'm like, oh crap, it's now or never. I won't see him again for two months. Like, I have to do this. So I bring him upstairs and we start snuggling and cuddling and he's like, I love you. And I'm like, crap, now I really have to touch your penis. Drop the L word. So my heart is like racing and I go to unzip his pants. And like, I'm leaning my body as far away from the crotch area as possible. I don't, I don't know what's in there, but I know that I won't like it and it's not good. So it's like, I'm just like, just trying to get away from it. And then I give my hand one final shove and then I'm touching a penis. And you know what? It's not that bad. A penis kind of feels like a game controller, hold on, <laughs> made of human skin. When it's hard, it doesn't feel like that when it's flaccid. So I just go with it and I kind of pretend I'm playing Pac-Man and I'm like eating the, the pack dots and I'm out running the ghost and Alex is having a great time. He's moaning and I don't know, making all kinds of noises and I just am going with it. And then 30 seconds later, semen is everywhere. It's an explosion of semen on me, on him, on the wall, like on my piano-shaped telephone, which I still have, in and in the bed. This is like an, an, a cornucopia of semen. And I'm freaking out. He's, by the way, he's just, he's napping, because that's what you do. That's what you do when you come. And so he's just napping and chilling out. And he's like, well, hey, babe, let's take a nap together. And I'm like, oh, hells no. I got to get out of this landmine of semen now. And I need to sanitize all you and me and everything. So I jump out of bed and I go to my bathroom. And I just start washing my hands and just putting soap on my hands. Because I don't know how much soap it takes to kill sperm. I don't know. Does it die from water? Does it die from, from soap? I don't know. So I've been in there for so long. And I've forgotten about my boyfriend. So I I grab towels, I go back, and he's just like laying there. He's so humiliated and he's so sad. It's like he's like a puppy that just like crapped himself. <laughs> and I'm sure he was like, all I wanted to do was get a hand job, and now I feel terrible. And I'm like, we don't have time for this shit. I gotta clean up. So I start like scrubbing the bed sheets, right? But it's not working because that shit's everywhere. Also, I don't know if I don't clean it well enough, that shit could just reactivate later and crawl up my vagina and make me pregnant. I need to like sanitize it now. So I grab everything and I'm like, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna just wash it. Put it in the laundry room, just wash it. And as I'm walking downstairs, I'm like, oh, P.S. It's gonna look kinda weird if you need to do laundry all of a sudden after an hour of spending time with your boyfriend. <laughs> Like, I'm gonna need a diversion. I'm gonna need a reason other than semen to wash, to wash these sheets. So I go to the fridge, I pull out some apple juice, and I take it upstairs. And I go, yo, Alex, we need to, we need to pour this apple juice all over these bed sheets right now. And he's like, why? We've already made a mess. And I'm like, look, hear me out. So when my parents see me go into the laundry room and they're like, why are you just doing your, your laundry all of a sudden after spending time with your boyfriend? I could be like, oh, we were just drinking juice. We were just in bed being crazy with some juice and things got out of control. And he's like, this is terrible. But he, he does it and we, we pour this apple juice all over the already cum-soaked sheets. And it's just this nasty mess of cum and juice. <laughs> And I'm like, well, now we gotta wash that shoe, right? So we gra I grab it and I'm like, you stay here. And I go downstairs and I'm like, gonna outrun my parents. No one will catch me there. But of course my mom is in the laundry room. 
And the weird thing is, the tip-off in this, in this story is not that I had this nasty, like, pile of sheets. It's that I was even trying to do my own laundry. My mom looked at me, she's like, you've never done laundry. Like, why are you all of a sudden, you don't do laundry, you don't have the skill set. I never taught you the skill set, you don't even know. So she's like, I'm doing laundry, let me just take it. And I'm like, no, 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 I got it. And she's like, I'm literally putting stuff in. She, gra- she grabs it from my hand, and she starts smelling it, and she's like, is this, is this apple juice? And as I look down at her hands, I realize she's touching my boyfriend's semen. <laughs> and then I start panicking and I'm like, I need to tell her to wash her hands, but I can't say that. But then what if she touches my dad and he doesn't wash his hands and the sperm just gets recirculated around my house and finds its way back to my vagina. And I've never seen the movie Contagion, but If it's like the movie Contagion in my head, we all get impregnated with alien babies and we die. I don't think that's how Contagion works at all. But my mom and I are looking at each other and I'm like, yeah, it's apple juice. And she gives me that mom look that your moms have all given you. Like, I know you're up to something. I can't figure it out, but it's bad. But I'm gonna figure it out. I don't know now. I'm gonna get to it. Just hold up. So she leaves, and we never talk about it ever again. Uh, So to this day, I have no idea if my mom bought my excuse about apple juice or if uh, she knows that she touched my ex's sperm. But we were talking on the phone the other day, and she's like, Ari, what what story are you going to tell for the storytelling show with the pit? And I'm like, well, it's dirty. I can't can't really tell you what the story, you can never know about the story. But actually, it does involve you. And she goes, oh, am I the star? (laughs) And I'm like, mom, yes, 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 you are the star of of this story. Um, And even though I'm 27 and I know how sperm works, I know how like vaginas and fertilization, I know how it all works. Every time I have a sexual encounter and it gets kind of messy, I just have these flashbacks in my sex ed class, these huge images of gonorrhea. And even though the person that I'm with like wants to hold me and snuggle, it takes everything in my being not to just jump out of bed and grab a towel. Thank you very much. I was 27 years old, and I was completely miserable. My job, I had initially thought it would be more creative. It turns out it wasn't. I'm a creative person. I love to uh, write, I love to produce, I'm an an actor. And I had just gotten a new boss, and her method of communication was exclusively via voicemail, which is to say, she would be in her office and the door would be closed, You couldn't knock on the door and talk to her. You'd have to call her. It would go immediately to voicemail. You'd leave the voicemail, and you knew she was in there because a minute later, you would get a voicemail that would suddenly appear on your phone back, and usually the message was, yes, please fire this person. And I felt like I was a cog in this brutal corporate machine. It was not at all what I had signed up for. But thankfully, the summer did end, and I left for New York City on Labor Day weekend. Two dear friends of mine were getting married. And so I fly into town Friday night and I hit the ground running. I literally, I remember feeling so exuberant. The moment I got out of Penn Station, I literally walked 40 blocks to this person's like dragging luggage behind me of like, yes, I am feeling it. It is good. There is an excitement to this night. And uh, stayed with my uh, friend in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And uh, then the next day woke up and had an absolutely perfect New York City day. Because it's holiday weekend, there would be just people in the streets having parties. And this was astonishing to me. It'd be just friends of friends saying, hey, come on over, have a beer, have some hot dogs. And, uh, and I began to feel something very alien to me. I began to feel happy. Uh, these were exciting, creative people. We were playing, we were having fun, we were doing silly things. 
I felt like I was finally beginning to dig my way out of this horrible situation I was in. I would go back to L.A. and things would get better. And so it's 3.30 a.m. It's almost last call. We decide we're going to leave the bar. My friend walks me back to the place that I'm staying at in Brooklyn on a street named Hope, which I noted. And uh, we part ways. He continues on home to his uh, place a little down the way. And so I look back at this building that I had just been staying at, this old six-story industrial loft, and I realize I don't remember how to get the fuck back in. There's like a few doors in a row, one's for an apartment, one's the elevator, and one's the staircase. And I remember taking the elevator that previous night and going, I am never getting back in this thing again. It is old and rickety and it's weird. I don't understand it. You've got to like pull the the door. There's like, I, it was ridiculous and I just didn't want to touch it. So I remembered where the staircase was. I was going back in there. I grab my key and I go to this door and there's no keyhole. And it's super dark. And I'm super tired. And so I step back onto the street, look back at this whole picture, scratching my head. I think, ah, I will call my friend. She's sleeping up on the you know, sixth floor. She might, she's probably even awake. I'll give her a call. She'll come back down. We'll sort this whole thing out. So I'm dialing this number, and my phone dies because the battery is low. And I am stuck here in the middle of this street at 3.30 in the morning, and I have nowhere to go and no one to call. I have one chance left. So I walk back to the door. I give it a tug. It's a double door. The left door creaks and groans. It doesn't quite move. So I rear back, give it one more pull. The right door opens, and here I am. Freedom at last. And so I step in. And then I just keep stepping into this black hole and it is shocking to me it's all happening so quickly there's wind that's racing past me and I'm feeling this incredible acceleration but I can see nothing and suddenly I see stars and there is whiteness and there is pain and it feels like my entire body has been punched and there's a moment where I don't understand what's happening Something is very wrong. I feel like I must have lost a tooth, so the first thing I go for is my face. And all of my teeth are there, but it doesn't feel like they should be. And so then I try to get to my feet, and it turns out I can, but I have to favor the left side of my body because my right side does not feel good. And I look around, and there is pitch blackness. I see nothing. And I look up, High above me is a tiny door-sized sliver of light. And I realize, oh, that's where I came from. This is not the staircase. And I remember that right before I had stepped in, there was a guy that had been walking past talking on his cell phone with his friend. And I scream, hey, please help. And suddenly his face appears in the doorway, high above me, and he says, yes? And I say, I'm sorry, I fell down this elevator shaft. And he says, really? Bullshit. Really? And I say, yes, I really fell down this fucking elevator shaft. Please, can you, can you, call, can you call someone? And he's talking with his friend, and he says, uh, I, I will call you right back. And he hangs up, and he dials 911. Meanwhile, I'm looking around, and my eyes are starting to adjust to the light. I'm starting to see what's on the walls, and it's just brick. I'm in the bottom of this pit, and there's nowhere that I can go. And I start to hear voices, and I realize that it's coming from the elevator. Now, the elevator is not on the ground floor, where I came in from, and it's not on the basement floor, which is where I landed, but it's on the fifth floor. And there are voices above, and they're coming into the elevator, friends saying goodbye to each other, coming down the elevator onto me. And so I yell up as loud as I can, Hey, please stop! Stop! And they're not stopping. 
They don't hear. And my good Samaritan's on the line with the firefighter and he has to stop and he yells up at them too and we're both yelling, stop, please, stop, I'm down here. And finally they hear us. I hear, oh my God. And there's scrambling because the machinery is starting to move. The door is closed. The cycle has begun. And they pull the emergency brake or whatever it is on that thing, but I hear a grinding of gears and the elevator stops. So that out of the way, I decide to do the only thing that I can do, which is look for my glasses, which have fallen off in the Malay. And I'm beginning to see a little better, and I'm beginning to see the ground, and I'm feeling around it at first, and there's like, it's shitty down there. It's gross. There are these old bags and discarded tissues, and I'm feeling all of this crap, and I'm beginning to finally see. And what I'm seeing is that what I've landed on is miraculously a dirt floor. I begin to touch my first piece of metal, and I realize that there is metal all around. Metal in the form of spikes that are jutting out of the ground to interact with the elevator as it comes down. This whole elevator apparatus is all around me, and there are sharp spikes, and I had made a perfect swan dive into the middle of this dirt floor, and it somehow missed everything that was around me. And I'm like... I got to look for my fucking glasses and find these. I'm going to put these puppies on my face and I'm going to dust myself off and I'm going to take a hot shower and I'm going to go to this wedding in 12 hours because that is what I need to get to do. And so it becomes this race to find the glasses before the paramedics are there so that I can be okay again. And I'm starting to hear sirens and they're coming closer. And as the flashing lights start to appear through the crack in the door high above, success, I find the glasses, and I smile, and I put them on my face. And the moment I put them on my face, I realize, holy shit, they are at a 90-degree angle. They are hanging off of, like, the one... Uh, side of them is like on my forehead and the other side is on my ear. And so I threw them on the ground and looked up just as high above a firefighter strides to the edge of this door and looks down on me. And he is mustachioed. He is got his hands on his hips. He is quietly and casually heroic. And he surveys the scene slowly and he looks down at me and I apologize. I say, I am so sorry. I, I fell down this elevator. I, I'm trying to pull myself out. There's, there's no way. I, I, you may have to come down and get me. I really apologize. I fell like eight feet. No big deal. And he looks at me with that same slightly smug look. And he says, nobody, you fell about 20 feet down there. And that's when it hits me. And I start to shake a little bit on my unsteady feet. And he says, don't worry, buddy, we'll get you out of there. And uh, I don't know how they're going to do this. Well, it turns out there was a basement apartment. And so these poor people got roused at four in the morning. And about five feet above, they pry open the uh, elevator doors to their unit. And they bring down this board and they all pile in with me into this pit and they strap me to this board because they assume that my neck is, you know, just broken, that I'm destroyed. But I know that I'm not. I feel like I had just taken a terrible beating, but I feel fine. And I know that I should not feel fine. I know I should be dead at the bottom of this pit. But I'm not. I, I hate to admit it because I'm a generally a very positive person, but all that time and that horrible job, I, I, I began to feel not just helpless or powerless, but I had begun to fear what it was like to be already dead. And I felt this is what it's like to be already dead. What I'm doing doesn't matter. And I was so happy to discover that I was not. 
Jonah's Risk. Uh, that is Ghost Beach behind me now with a song called Miracle. And before that, we heard from Eric Martin, fan of the show who reached out to us from the submissions page on our site. He is a producer and director in Los Angeles. His podcast, This American Wife, can be heard on iTunes. And we call his story Going Down. Our next story comes to us from William Mullen, a dear friend of mine. William has a show out in Provincetown, a story show called Closet Cases, uh, you know, coming out stories. And I tell a story on this podcast called Toe Up in P-Town about the adventure I had there going to do William's show out there last summer. He's hilarious, and he's at williammullen.com. Here he is at the Risk Live show in New York with a story we call Show Me Love. How you guys doing? <laughs> Story time. Um, like, uh, like a lot of uh, gay guys, I had a girlfriend in high school. Um, and I just, you know, because like back then, like you're feeling these sexual feelings uh, toward boys, but you, I, I didn't label it. Like I didn't label myself as like, I'm gay. No, I'm just like, I just like to fool around with guys. You know, once in a while. And then, but I hung out with like, like jocks. And so they, um, no one knew I was gay. And I didn't even know I was gay. I just knew I just, I, I, when I would masturbate, it would just be a picture of guys in a locker room. <laughs> Basically the football team. <laughs> focused on the quarterback. But, but so um, uh, I, I had this girlfriend and we met um, uh, during a, a musical and we're like, wow, we're meant to be together because we both like show tunes. <laughs> and she, um, I didn't know I was gay, no one knew I was gay, and she certainly didn't know that she was the perfect fag hag. Perfect, I mean, she's like, like one of those large women knows every show tune and is always the loudest laugher in a group, right? She like, she excels to like keep laughing when everyone stopped laughing, right? And she would shake a room and she would laugh at anything. You, you would tell her, it's sunny out. And she'd be like, that's great. It's sunny. You crack me up. And it's just like, okay. And it, what was perfect is, is her name was Bonnie. That's like the perfect, rotund, loud laugher name, Bonnie. Um, so, um, so we would be going out, and my friends, like back then in high school, right, like there was this big thing. It's like uh, this buildup, this hype about the vagina. It was like sex. It's like everyone starts doing it, and it's going to change your life, right? And so all my guy friends are like, oh, my God, you've been going out with Bonnie for like a while. Dude, what are you waiting for? I was like, uh, a guy? I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> and, like, and so um, I, I felt the pressure. I'm like, okay, well, this is going to change my life. It's, gonna, it's, it's a whole new chapter of my life if I can just have intercourse with Bonnie. So I actually didn't go about it the, the right way. I just asked her point blank one day. I was just like, can we have sex? And she looked at me and she goes, No. She goes, not until you tell me that you love me. And in, not until then will we make love. And I was like, oh, fuck. And it took me about a week to figure out, all I have to do is tell her I love her. So a week later, we're in the Friendly's parking lot eating ice cream. I asked her how her mint chocolate chip was. And I said, I love you, pass a napkin. And she was like, she literally almost dropped her, her ice cream and she was like, 
oh my God. And we both dove into her car and drove to her house where her parents were still at work. House was empty. We go up to her bedroom and we proceed to like mechanically take off our clothes like we were changing at the gap. Like, like <laughs> these fit, these fit fine. How does this know? Okay, like, and it was just weird. So we're both naked and we kind of just go into bed. And like, it doesn't matter that I was gay. I don't think it matters if you're anything. If you're a raging hormonal teenage boy, anything will make you hard. Like the wind, a light post, a white snake video, any, anything will make you hard. And I was like raging hard because there's a naked person next to me. So I go and I reach into my wallet where for the last year I've been carrying around a condom. And I tear it open and I put it on and I go in. And I'm waiting for the magic. And I'm, I'm picturing like the magic, like, like the whole Brady Bunch experience, like with the fireworks, whenever they even kissed a girl, right? It's like, it's magic. And I'm like, come on, it's magic. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I, I have a job to do. So we get into it, and it was really odd because I would masturbate alone before this time where now I have to have it with another person, and I would just always be thinking about guys. But now the Bonnie's there. She's like ruining the whole fucking thing. <laughs> and she wouldn't be quiet. I'm sitting there trying to focus, and she's like, this is wonderful. And I'm like, shh, Bonnie, shh. They're in the... <laughs> He's in the locker room. I'm in the locker room. He's taking off his football pants. I love you, Billy. I'm like, fine, stop it, stop. And I'm like, okay, focus, focus. They're going to the shower. They're going to the shower. What are you mumbling about? I'm like, shut, they're going to the shower. They're almost there. And I'm like, and this is going on for, like, it seemed like for like an hour. And then she's losing patience. And she's like, what's taking so long? It's starting to hurt. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And then I, now I start panicking, thinking, if I don't climax, she's going to start a rumor that I'm gay in the high school. And I definitely don't want that. And I'm like, what am I fucking going to do? So I did what any other person in my situation would do. I faked my orgasm. <laughs> and I'd watched enough porn to know how to really do it right. And I'm telling you, award-winning, dramatic, frigging climax. And the whole time she's like, yes, yes, yes! I'm like, she has no idea, I'm not. And I collapsed on top of her, and I was thinking, fuck, that was close. That was a really good job. And then she says, I wanna see it. And then it fucking hits me. Shit, this is the first time she's doing it. She's never seen semen before. I'm like, oh my God. She goes, I want to see our love. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> so I'm like, think, what the hell am I going to do? So I, I said, I, I really have to go to the bathroom. I have to go to the So I get out of bed and I kind of shuffle to the bathroom. My, my, my poor penis is still in shock. And it's just like, I walk into the bathroom, I close the door, and I am the farthest away from producing semen than anyone has ever been in their life. And I now have to produce it on demand in a bathroom. And so um, I, I go and I sit on the toilet, and I'm telling you, I have never focused harder in my life. The SATs? The driving test, right? The driving test with the driving, nothing compares in my whole life than the focus. I, every part of a guy's body went through my mind faster than it's ever in, in my life. And I did it. And right into the condom. And right then, a knock. What's taking so long? What's happening in there? And I open the door and I raise my hand like an Olympic athlete holding up a gold medal during their national anthem. And I was like, here is our love. And she grabbed it and she looks at it. She goes, oh, yuck. It looks like spit. I'm like, definitely not spit. <laughs> 
And that's my story. Thanks, folks. So we're told as kids never ever to get in, into a car with a stranger. And this was a piece of advice that I ignored exactly once in my life. And I thought it would be okay because I was 28 years old at the time and the person who I got into the car with was a driving instructor. Uh, I had attempted to learn to drive as a teenager, but uh, for various reasons hadn't gotten a chance to practice a lot, so I failed my driving test. And uh, for many years I lived in New York City, and like a lot of people made do without a car, didn't really need one, and just sort of bummed rides off of people. But it got to be a real problem whenever I wanted to, say, go anywhere beyond the extent of the New York City subway system, or in my case, when I was in my late 20s, I decided that I wanted to buy a house. And I quickly realized that it was going to be impossible to shop for a house in the suburbs, let alone live in the suburbs without a car. So I needed to uh, get a license, and before I could get a license, I needed to learn how to drive. So uh, at the time, I was living on Staten Island, and I arranged for driving lessons at a local driving school. It was about 12 sessions over six weeks. And my uh, instructor was a, uh, he was sort of overweight. He was probably about 40 pounds, 50 pounds overweight. Uh, he looked, I pegged him for his 50s, but he looked prematurely aged. So he seemed harmless, whose name was Ron. He was very chatty and possibly a little too chatty. I found it really difficult to concentrate on moving an incredibly, uh, to me, dangerous car while he was constantly nattering at me. But uh, I was raised to be really polite and deferential and sort of put other people's social comfort first. And so I tended to just, just let him blather on and I would just occasionally try to respond. Um, we, we had a shift in conversation over time um, that, that began with uh, some very vague statements concerning marital discontent. At one point he said to me, um, things get old after a few years. And I just nodded, because uh, I didn't really know what he, what he was talking about. And he said, he continued and said, uh, you just realize you married the wrong person. And then uh, he sort of followed that up by saying, my wife isn't a very adventurous person. And I thought maybe he was talking about scuba diving or something. But then he said, she's not very sexually adventurous. And I really didn't know what to say in response, because I, I just thought, this guy is you know, I guess he's sort of clueless, but I let it go. And uh, the next week, his opening gambit was to ask me if I ever took vitamins. And I said, no, why? And he said, well, I take vitamins. I take a lot of vitamin B, especially. It's really good for blood circulation, and that really helps with erections. And at that point, I was getting incredibly uncomfortable. And uh, I went home after that lesson and really didn't know what to do about the situation. I had about two lessons left, and it had taken forever to schedule my driving test. And uh, I just felt like um, I didn't want to. I didn't want to screw this up. I had plans. You know, I, I was on a schedule to look for a house, and I didn't want to have to try to find some other driving instructor on short notice to get me through the lesson and all that. So I just thought, oh, I'll just, I'll just see how the next couple weeks pan out. Uh, this turns out to be uh, to have been a really stupid decision. I really should have trusted my instinct. So it was uh, my penultimate lesson. We had two lessons left, and on the second to last one, uh, we headed to an area of Staten Island called Silver Lake, which is kind of a it's a nice suburban area, but it's very quiet. So um, we made a right down a, a quiet street, and as we were driving down the street, I was looking around and realizing that uh, there weren't really a lot of houses on this street. As we got further and further down the street, I noticed that the houses were disappearing, and really, at the end of the street, there were no houses, and this was a dead-end street. And he told me to pull over and park. So I did, and was kind of wondering, you know, what we were going to do. And we sat there for a few moments. And then Ron turned and looked at me intently and said, if I was to rape you right now, it would be your word against mine. And I just kind of sat there and tried to take this in, and I remember thinking to myself, 
this is how people get raped. And some part of me thought uh, I needed to treat him like a wild animal. Like I couldn't show fear or he would attack. Couldn't look at him. I just had to stand my ground and he'd back off. So I didn't say anything. I just reached down uh, to the gear shift and put it in drive and said, I'm driving home now. And uh, did a quick K-turn back down the street and we drove back to my neighborhood in complete silence. When I got out of the car, I didn't say anything. I was just way too shaken up. And I went home and for several days, uh, I, I wrestled with what to do about this situation. Um, I knew there was a chance he was dangerous, but on, on the other hand, I figured if he had planned to do something, he had the perfect opportunity and he didn't do it. So maybe he was just playing with me. He was just sadistic or something. And I also realized with uh, some retroactive alarm that the car was dual braked. So there was at any point on that street, he could have stopped the car and done whatever he wanted and he didn't. So I thought, well, you know, maybe it's going to be okay. So uh, the next week it was the last session and stupidly I got in the car <laughs> just thinking, well, I just need to get this over with. It'll be fine. But on the other hand, a part of me is thinking, you know, this is going to be a long 45 minutes and it could end really badly. And I was gambling and I knew it, but I was just so impatient. You know, you're young and you're impatient and you just want to get on with your plans. So we drove and as I drove, Ron began to talk as usual. And he said, you know, some women get the wrong idea about some things I say sometimes. One time I was teaching this lady and I said, hey, we're going to have a good time today. She misinterpreted and thought I was saying something sexual. I just kept driving. Anyway, I just want to make sure you didn't get the wrong idea about anything I said. It was all in good fun. Ron was uh, clearly worried. <laughs> and somehow that removed my own worry. Although uh, I was still wary enough that I wasn't going to turn down any quiet streets with him that day. So at the top of the hour, we were back on my street. Nothing had happened. And I got out of the car and he said, okay, Julie, I'll pick you up next week for the test. And I went inside and found a friend willing to take me to the driving test, willing to let me use her car. Called the driving school after hours, left a message, and I never saw Ron again. I was a much more passive person back then, and I put up with a lot of crap. Uh, and I would never, I would never have let things escalate the way they did. I would have, if he'd said something that, that had made me uncomfortable as he did, like in the fourth week or so, I would have said, you know, that's really out of line. Or I would have just found another school. I, I wouldn't, I would never put myself in that kind of danger again. The, the one benefit to getting older is that you learn, you learn not to do stupid things or you learn not to let people, you know, abuse you or take advantage of you. is Langhorn Slim, the song called The Way We Move. And before that, we heard Julie Threlkeld. Uh, she's an editor and a journalist. You can find more of her stuff at modernstories.com. Julie was a student of ours at the Story Studio a while back. 
But after she recorded that story with me, Julie said something I thought I should mention. She said, if that were to happen today, she would not hesitate to alert the authorities, to call the cops. So, amen to that. Our next story is about what just might happen when you transplant a Boston gal to the Windy City. (laughs) Just remember that we here at risk love Chicago. But during the time this story recounts, Miss Selena Kopik did not. But here at the show, we're trying to get Chicago storytellers to send us their stuff. So if you're a Chicagoan, just know we love you. It's this Copic woman we're a little bit iffy about. (laughs) Nah, there's room in our hearts for both. Selena's got a book coming out from HarperCollins in March of 2013 called The New Rules for Blondes. Here she is at the Risk Live show with a story we call That Toddlin' Town. Um, So I, for a long time, hated Chicago. I hated the band. I hated the font. (laughs) But mostly I hated the city. Um, And that is because I lived my most miserable, depressed, terrible 11 months of my life in Chicago, fresh out of college. Uh, I moved there to be an improv comedian and to study at I.O. and to be happy and love my life. And after I.O. would be SNL. And I mean, here we go. Um, And pretty quickly, I was working as a paralegal. Uh, I was depressed as hell. I was not doing comedy at all. Uh, And I just hated everything about my life. Uh, Everything sucked when I lived in Chicago. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Uh, I had a really bad boyfriend. Um, We started dating as soon as I got there. And uh, after, it was just really intense. And very quickly, um, we went to a party together. And I watched him grab another woman's ass in front of me. Uh. Classy shit, yeah. Um, and so we broke up. I broke up with him because this is not something I'll stand for. And yet somehow I was the one who was really depressed and couldn't get over it. He was a-okay. He moved on a-okay. Um, but I slid into a wicked depression, the depths of which I was stunned by. Um, I had a bad boyfriend. I had a bad job. Uh, I was working as a paralegal for an immigration law firm in the South Loop, mostly processing H-1B and L-1A visas, some J-1s. Um, (laughs) Some J1s, keep it loose, keep it loose. Um, I do love a good J1, but anyway, that's not the point. Um, So I would be processing um, documents for these attorneys, and then they would be able to, you know, sign their name on it and bill $450 per hour to the client for documents that I'd prepared. And it was just a nightmare. It was a shitty job. Billable hours, billable hours like crazy. It drove me so, it made me so sad. I was so depressed over it. And I was assigned to work for the managing partner of the firm who was a Jekyll and Hyde, terrible woman who would literally call me into her office and then scream, what the fuck were you thinking? When I forgot to make a photocopy of a visa that we already had in the folder. Like, don't worry, I can make another copy. The real thing's here. Um, And I remember when she yelled at me, the first time it ever happened, I almost shit my pants. Um, Literally, like I felt my sphincter open up like the aperture of a camera. Whoa, whoa, hey, if I had enough money to eat breakfast occasionally, I would have just deuced in the pants. Oh my God. Uh, Thankfully, never ate breakfast, too broke, too broke. So uh, never anything in here so I could open up my uh, sphincter easily and nothing would come out. A-okay. Um, I, of course, had a drinking problem. I mean, come on, you know what I mean? What else are you going to do? Uh, so I would leave Zulky Partners. Yay! I would leave Zulky Partners uh, at 5 p.m. and go straight to a bar called Pippin's that's right off of Michigan Avenue uh, to just get shit-faced uh, constantly because uh, I loved being hungover at work. It was so nice to be hungover at work because fuck you. You know, I just, I love feeling like dog shit because that was the only reminder that I had some life outside of this billable hour nightmare. Um, and I was broke, of course. 
working as a paralegal, fresh out of college, making terrible money. I was so broke, because uh, all my money went towards alcohol. Um, so I didn't have a lot left over for extras, like public transportation or groceries, you know? <laughs> Gotta cut out the special stuff sometimes. Um, and I was so broke, I remember one time specifically, I, I would eat a tuna sandwich for lunch every single day. That's what I would bring from home. It's very cheap, you know? Uh, I must have had a wicked case of mercury poisoning for a long time. <laughs> I would eat tuna every day. And then finally one day I decided I would treat myself and go to Jamba Juice for a drink. Yeah. Five dollar drink. Okay, high roller. Uh, so I went to Jamba Juice. It was, I remember I was getting paid the next day and I thought I had like five fifty in the checking account. And I went and I ordered a drink and I handed the woman my uh, debit card from Mid-America Bank. <laughs> Sweet name, dickwads. Oh. <laughs> So I handed her my card and she swiped it and it was rejected because I didn't even have $5 in my bank account. And, I, and she'd already blended the drink, you know, and I was just standing there, I was like, oh, fuck. So I handed her my Amex knowing full well it was maxed out. I mean, there was no money left on it. I had no money to my name, but I was like, let's do this dumb charade where I pretend I don't want to kill myself. <laughs> so I handed her my Amex and she swiped it and was like, and we just stared at each other, and I was practically in tears. And I was like, I don't know. And uh, this sweet Jamba Juice lady just, oh man. I mean, it was like she knew I needed so much more than this free razzmatazz with protein boost. <laughs> like, I needed fucking help, you know? But maybe the first step would be a free razzmatazz with protein boost. So God bless her, she gave it to me for free. And uh, she was just like, no, take it, it's already blended. <laughs> and I gotta say, like, getting a free Rasmataz with Protein Boost was the nicest thing that happened to me in my entire year in Chicago. <laughs> so I called my parents and I was like, listen, uh, I literally am thinking about throwing myself in front of the L train. Like, it was dark, dark time. I would just cry constantly. I would cry in the morning. I would wake up crying, cry in the shower, cry on the way to work. Like, I was just, it was, a ter it was like nothing I've ever experienced. So I called my parents and I was like, please help me. Um, if I don't come home soon, I'm coming home in a body bag. Uh, so God bless, they were like, fuck it, we'll pay your last month's rent, come home. So I moved home to my parents' house in the suburbs of Boston and uh, like sleeping back in the old twin bed with glow-in-the-dark stars overhead, like, oh, everything sucks. Uh, but I was just so glad not to be in Chicago and sad anymore. And I slowly dug out over the course of a year and I got a job that also paid shit, but I wasn't paying rent. And my parents like kind of nursed me back to life. So after a year, I was like, I'm going to go back to Chicago. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, for, a, for a weekend to make peace with the city to show this city it didn't get me. <laughs> so I was like, I'm just gonna go back because I was gone long enough to forget what I hated about it. So I went back to Chicago and like a glutton for punishment, I went out to dinner with the ass grabber ex-boyfriend. <laughs> hey, way to go. Uh, so we went out to dinner and then we ended our night by going to a bar called Stanley's um, that's in Old Town, Lincoln Park. That's sort of a late night bar. And, um, and I'm there with the ass grabber ex and he's being a douchebag. And I'm like, what am I doing? He's such a piece, like, I want him so badly to like me and he doesn't give a shit. And we're doing this all over again, Selena. And you learn nothing from this year of being away. You're coming back to make peace. No, you're not. You haven't learned shit. You're in the same exact boat. And so uh, my ex-boyfriend was like, listen, I'm gonna go to another bar with my buddies uh, and you should probably stay here. And he made it pretty clear that I was not invited to continue on with him. And my friend Ginny was at Stanley's somewhere, so I was like, okay. So he leaves, and I'm standing alone in the bar, and Ginny is somewhere by the bar, but I'm sort of in this, it's very crowded. And I'm standing there all alone, and he walks out, and I just remember so vividly, Suspicious Minds was playing by Elvis. Fucking amazing song. Um, and I am all alone, and it's just right back where I was a fucking year ago. And I feel like so upset. And I just feel like if somebody even looks at me wrong, I'm gonna cry or I'm just gonna swing. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, like I love when the song, it's just like, I'm caught in a trap. I can't walk out because I love you too much, baby. And I'm standing there and I'm just like, oh God, I feel just so fragile. Like, I, this is not okay. I just feel like I'm about to break. And at that moment, I just feel wet. 
down the back of my hair, just a fucking wetness. And I turn around and it's a couple and they're drunk Cubs fans. And they are so drunk, they can't stand up and they've just spilled their entire beer down the back of my hair. And I am not in any shape to fucking let this go. And I have a fresh pint in my hand. And I just spin around, like I identify what's going on and then I'm just like, onto this couple. And they're like, oh my God, what the fuck is your problem? Because they're so fucking Chicago. And I tee off on them like they are my year depression in Chicago. I did what I do when I get really drunk, which is I slip into a Boston accent, which you know I don't fucking have. But when I get really drunk, it's like Goodwill haunting up in this bitch. I just fucking lose it on these two, and I'm like, fuck you, fuck you. Second city, more like fucking shit city. This place sucks, cock. Oh my God. You're born in my fucking what, Wisconsin and Indiana? You're a bunch of fucking losers. What a goddamn joke. Oh, act like Lake Michigan's a cool coastline. No, it's not, you fucking dickwads. Get a fucking ocean, you fucks. Atlantic, Pacific, fuck you. Uh, two bouncers then run over and take my screaming body. They picked me up and dropped me in an alley. And they asked me to please never return to Stanley's. Which I was like, oh, never come back to this godforsaken town? That would be my fucking pleasure. I'll tell you this, P.S. Pussycats. Um, so uh, I made peace with Chicago my way, <laughs> which is really not at all. Um, but I did, a couple years later, I went back without any pressure. I wasn't gonna prove that this city hadn't ruined me. I just went back really casually. And it's such a fucking beautiful city. And I finally, eventually, did make peace with Chicago. Thank you. stories this week and this is the last time i'll mention kenny Loggins on this episode this is the ting tings behind me now with a song called give it back hey would you like to learn this storytelling stuff for any purposes for for your business uh, for your own self-esteem we teach workshops of all kinds online workshops one-on-one coaching 
The best way to get better at storytelling of any kind is practice and practice and getting feedback from teachers and peers. That is what we do. That is what we love to do at thestorystudio.org. Check it out today. And don't forget, today is the day, folks. Take a risk. touching a penis. A penis kind of feels like a game controller made of human skin. So I just go with it and I kind of pretend I'm playing Pac-Man and then semen is everywhere. everywhere, 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 everywhere.